This is a Sunday Talk by Joel titled Transforming Relationships, recorded September 29, 1996 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, this morning I'm going to answer the first of a bunch of questions that were dropped in our new question box. I said very good questions, by the way. Uh, but this question this morning is, could you discuss the role of relationship on a spiritual path? And I assume the person means uh, a committed amorous relationship uh, as between a husband and wife or people who are entering a long-term partnership rather than uh, all the other sorts of relationships we do have in life. And this is the most perhaps complex of human relationships, but the same principles spiritually would, that apply here would apply to any other relationship, at least almost all other relationships. So uh, in a slightly different form, they would still even apply to somebody you only knew casually, like the grocery store clerk you saw once a week or something. So everything we say about this relationship, if you are not in such a relationship, uh, you can still get value out of this and, and just apply it to other relationships in your life. And the first thing I think to understand is that a spiritual path, if it is successful, if it is working in your life, if something's happening, transforms the experience of our relationships. And so the role of the relationship changes in your life as you progress on a spiritual path. So we can ask and talk about this from the point of view of where do we begin normally in human relationships? In what ways are they transformed on a spiritual path? And where do we end up? So where do most people begin? Now, of course, human beings are quite unique in many ways, so everything here I say today isn't going to apply to everybody in every aspect. This is a, a general uh, overview of it. But generally speaking, under delusion, we experience ourselves as individual, finite, bounded entities of some sort, as selves, as maybe souls, egos, we have different words for this. And because we experience ourselves as finite, bounded entities, we experience ourselves as separate from or cut off from other, the big other, the world, but also other individual, as we conceive them, selves, souls, entities. So we experience ourselves sort of uh, wandering around in this big world, bumping into these other beings that are kind of like ourselves, that the, the, they themselves are cut off and separate and isolated. Now, this experience of being cut off, of being isolated, is itself suffering. It's, the, it's probably the most basic existential form of suffering there is. Even if you had no other suffering in your life, you didn't have any diseases, you didn't have any uh, enemies, uh, you had nothing else going on, just the fact of feeling yourself isolated and cut off is itself suffering. And we know this intuitively. We may not realize it consciously, but something inside us knows this. And so this suffering motivates us to try to end this isolation by engaging in relationships with other human beings, and especially love relationships, as love between adults here, where we can really get close, bond, to try to somehow overcome this barrier, this sense of separation, this sense of being cut off and isolated. Now, notice that this impulse to love is itself sacred, literally sacred, because it's based on this intuition that self is suffering, which gives rise to this urge to sacrifice that self, that boundary. That's what sacred means, the, the, the related etymologically sacred and sacrifice. 
So already from the get-go, whether you're spiritual or not, or ever heard of uh, spirituality or anything, if you are uh, a normal human being, there is this urge to dissolve the suffering by sacrificing this self. The trouble is, we don't realize that the urge to sacrifice this self is really the flip side of a longing for God, or the infinite, let me might say. In other words, our desire to get rid of the sense of being bounded selves is itself the desire for the infinite. Instead of being finite, to be infinite, to merge with the infinite, to uh, uh, somehow transcend these limitations that we have. That doesn't mean we're necessarily aware of this, but this is just in the nature of things. If you do get rid of the, these boundaries, if you do sacrifice them, that is God, that is the infinite, that is the absolute. But because we're ignorant of the infinite, under delusion, I'm talking about people who aren't on any particular spiritual path, we seek to end our isolation through relationship with finite beings like ourselves. We look for people to give our hearts away to. This is why Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, says, No one is loved but God, but the name of the created thing acts as a veil. In other words, what we really are longing for, what we really love is God. We don't know it. And we look around, and the, the closest we see to that are other, other people, other creatures. Now, this right away starts to cause more problems. This initial suffering and this strategy we take to try to end it just involves us in deeper and deeper suffering. First of all, the other individual beings, creatures, are all impermanent. Uh, they're impermanent, not only in the fact that human beings, as the form of human being, is impermanent, I mean, we grow old and die and all that, but we are very impermanent in our moods, our emotions, our attitudes, and so forth, you know? So what you may fall in love with about some person is always changing. It's, you know, there's always this change going on. And nothing that is uh, impermanent can completely satisfy our longing for the infinite, the divine. This is why Ananda Moyamai, who is a great uh, Hindu mystic, says, Happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. Everything in this world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes and the next moment it is gone. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. This isn't any big secret. I mean, just look at your own life and, and see what your own experience. Is it tested? Is it true? So one of our most basic problems here is not that we love. There's no problem with the love itself, but that the love is already misdirected. It's already now aimed at something that ultimately cannot really satisfy that love, that longing for that love, let's put it that way. And this distortion in our perception of the true object of our longing uh, creates interesting and, and painful distortions in, in our human relationships then. For instance, uh, one of the first and major ones is that in our psyches, and I say this, again, we're not necessarily consciously aware of this, but deep in our psyches, the, the quest for romantic love here, for your soulmate or whatever, becomes symbolic of the quest for God. And God then takes the form in your psyche of an archetype, an anima or animus archetype, as Jung called them. And the way, a quick way to sort of describe this is in, in your psyche, in your deep psyche, you have this image of the perfect soulmate. And animus uh, uh, female and animus is male. So you may have uh, either one in your psyche. And then you go out in the world and you start looking for people who fit this image. Now this is actually a sort of a watered-down God image. This is the ideal lover, the ideal beloved. 
And when you uh, see somebody, you meet somebody who is somewhat matches this idealized image, this archetype, you project that onto them. I forgot to do this this morning, but I once saw a Jungian psychologist give a wonderful little, very simple explanation of this. Uh, he got a piece of paper uh, and he cut out a silhouette of a face. And he said, this is like this, this archetype, the anima or animus you carry in your psyche. And you go and, and you see, oh, there, that's it. She's the one. Because you see, it matches this, right? And then you say, darling, would you, would you move, turn your head sideways a little bit? Look, the nose matches perfectly, right? And you fall head over heels in love with that person. Now, what this projection does, first of all, is it, 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 it blots out your perception of who they actually are. <laughs> all the little things that don't fit your idealized image, right? And you continue uh, being in love and all this until finally the discrepancy between, as you get to know the person, between who they really are and your image just uh, forces a withdrawal of this projection. And maybe some of you have experienced this. This is, you know, when you wake up one day and you say, oh my God, how did I fall in love with that person? <laughs> right? Is that, uh, somebody's had that experience? <laughs> now, most of us, what we do is then we just go out and we look for somebody else. And we're not aware of this archetype, but, you know, and, aha, he's the one. Bingo, the same thing happens over again. And that's an extreme form of, of what happens, but uh, this, this is a, an example of this kind of distortion that our, since we don't realize what we're really longing for, and we misdirect it, what happens uh, because of that. The second one is we uh, fall in love with people who are the most unavailable. Has that ever happened to anybody? We fall in love with people who, in a certain sense, we know we can never have, and they often let us know. Sometimes they uh, tease us or, you know, whatever, but they are the most remote from us. And, of course, the more remote and more unavailable are, the more desperate we become, the more longing we have for them. And, again, what this is is a, a symbolic archetypal drama because what they represent to us is the, the greatest challenge to our isolation. If we could win their love, then symbolically we prove that love conquers all. There, there is nothing in the universe that we could not uh, have this union with because they represent the farthest reach from ourselves, right? Now, the, the trouble in, in both these cases, it almost always fails. I mean, we pursue the persons until eventually, after we've torn our hair out and all that, there's just, you know, we're totally exhausted and it's time to give up. So these are two kinds of distortions. You can see how this misdirection of love shows up in our actual concrete experience. They're just two examples of that. And there's another problem with our not understanding what love inside us is really about, what it really longs for. And that is that love itself, or rather the demand love makes, this sacred demand, terrifies us. On the one hand, we have this urge to sacrifice ourselves so that we can uh, end this isolation we feel, this terrible existential loneliness. But on the other hand, Wait a minute, what does that mean to sacrifice ourselves? It, it means like a kind of death. And since we don't know any other mode of existence except this limited uh, I, uh, ego existence, that's terrifying. So this creates tremendous ambivalence uh, in our attitude about love and when we start to experience love, when we start to uh, fall in love with somebody. We want this, but we don't want it at the same time. Even if we find somebody to love and we have a reasonably clear perception of who they are, in other words, our, our, our anima or animus isn't really interfering too much here, or, or maybe we've gotten beyond that stage and begun to appreciate the person as a person. Even so, then, our relationship is always fraught with all sorts of conflicts. And we say, well, I'm willing to give up part of myself as long as I get something back. Because that, that void that is always threatening to open up is, is as I said, terrifying. And this is why uh, we get into all these battles, sort of issues of like control and fairness and are my needs being met? 
And we worry about that. We fight back and forth and so forth and so on. And this is why in our culture, purely secular relationships often, not always, there are always exceptions, but often end up as quite loveless affairs. Uh, they end up as sort of a patchwork of compromises. Uh, you know, the, the, the couple, as they enter middle age, a certain routine gets worked out. They cease to communicate. They're, they're, they don't necessarily are, aren't having great dramatic fights anymore. They've sort of made a, a peace, a truce. And the only thing that's really holding it together is a fear of loneliness, of, you know, uh, this may not be the greatest relationship in the world. It may not have any of the real joys of love, but at least there's someone around, another breathing being around. And uh, many people in our culture settle for that. And I think uh, we know in our own lives examples, uh, if, we, if, if we ourselves are not in it, but that we see this happening often in our families. Um, it is possible without any conscious, aware spiritual path to transcend that. My father and his wife had a really wonderful relationship at the end of their lives. But it was a relationship that was moving more and more towards sacrificing for each other. It was not a relationship based on, I'm not getting my needs met and so forth. It was wonderful to watch them. They just start, kept more and more going out of their way to give more and more to each other and not ask anything from each other. And so their relationship really deepened. But that is not how most, uh, that in my experience, most relationships end up. Now, actually, if we can see what's happening here, if we can become aware of it, this can actually be a spur to going on a spiritual path. This itself can be a spur. If we start to realize that we are not going to get ultimate happiness from any human relationship, that no human relationship can really satisfy this deepest desire, this deepest longing we have, then we stop looking uh, uh, to, to human beings to fulfill that. And we start looking for something else. And that's an, a wonderful opening to, uh, for someone to go on a spiritual path, because they start to get this deeper intuition that only the infinite can really satisfy me. Now, notice I say ultimate happiness here. It's not that you can't be, uh, you know, happy with people and so forth. But it's the, our demand that they make us ultimately happy that's the problem. So then, what happens if someone goes on a spiritual path? What happens to relationships? Well, first of all, a new relationship comes into your life. And that is a relationship with the divine itself. This relationship can range between two poles, two extremes. It's not an either-or thing. You, you can find yourself ending up on any part of this spectrum, and on a spiritual path, you may move around this spectrum. Uh, at one extreme, at one pole, is where the divine appears to you in some very concrete, usually human-like form. Uh, an archetypal form, again, uh, like a, a Christian uh, with Jesus. Uh, in, in India, you might be uh, fall in love with Krishna or... Uh, Shiva, or some form of the divine, Kali, or the great mother, or whatever. Or it might be even more concrete. It might be an in-flesh guru, who to you is, a, is an actual manifestation of the divine. And throughout the history of uh, spiritual traditions, we find this relationship, you know, cropping up over and over. It's, uh, in India, it's called uh, the, a bhakti path, or a bhakti approach to the divine. It's one that commands, demands, a very personal sort of love, very much like a love that you would have for a, uh, another human being. Except, of course, this form of the divine isn't really another human being. And because it is a symbol, it is transparent to something uh, greater. The other end of this extreme, uh, the divine appears to you more abstractly as a state of enlightenment, or uh, the awakened mind, the Buddha mind, or something like that. And this is, uh, in Hindu uh, tradition, is called janana, the janana approach, the approach of knowledge rather than of devotion. But it still requires a dedication, uh, now not a dedication so much to a personalized form of the divine, but a dedication to the search for enlightenment that is just as passionate, just as powerful as the bhakti, it's just expressed in a different way. It doesn't have that as strong uh, an immediate emotional uh, content. 
uh, for instance, in uh, Zen, which is pretty much a Janana tradition. They say, if the sweat hasn't rolled down your back, you can't have Satori. This is the kind of effort and longing and desire you have to have. It has to become a centerpiece in your life. Uh, my own teacher, Franklin Merrill Wolf, for instance, uh, who was a pure Janani, but he was passionate about this search for truth. And the proof was what he gave up for it. He graduated from Stanford, he had a doctorate from Harvard, he was brilliant in school, and he had a brilliant academic career awaiting him, and he chucked it all to pursue this search. So this is a, a relationship, and even though it doesn't appear in this more personalized form, that is, becomes the center of your life. So what happens to your human relationships when this happens? Well, if your, uh, if your introduction to the divine and your relation to the divine is particularly traumatic, you will transform all of your human relationships because you'll become an outward renunciate. In other words, you'll give up human relationships as personal relationships, love sort of relationships, and just devote yourself to the divine. Uh, this is what Mahadevi, who was a great Indian bhakti, uh, says about her relationship to Shiva, who, by the way, she calls here Chenna Malakarjuna, another name for Shiva. I have fallen in love with the beautiful one, who is, that, who is without any family, without any country, and without any peer. Chenna Malakarjuna, the beautiful one, is my husband. Fling into the fire of sati, the husbands who are subject to death and decay. The fire of sati, of course, was what the Indian wives, the widows, used to jump into when their husbands died. So she's doing a, a play on that, a reversal on that. She's now all these, these human husbands, these, you know, they're all subject to decay. Throw them away in the fire. I've got the, the eternal here. She was a bhakti, but this is also can be true of people who are following the Janana path. And the Buddha is the best example of this. Uh, he gave up his family relationships to pursue enlightenment. And it was, it's written of him, "'Twas not through hatred of his children, sweet. "'Twas not through hatred of his lovely wife, thraller of hearts. "'Not that he loved them less, but Buddhahood more, "'that he renounced them all." Now, first of all, I want to make a little cultural comment here. It is uh, it's not a, a appropriate to abandon your wife and family uh, under just any old circumstances. He happened to be a prince uh, living in a culture with a, with a, a very strong extended family, uh, extraordinarily wealthy, with aunts and uncles and grandparents around and so forth. And, and in fact, other, I don't think they were officially wise, but other consorts and so forth. So when he left his wife and children, he didn't leave them destitute and say, well, I'm sorry, honey, you're going to have to fend for yourself. I'm off on a spiritual path. So if you have an urge to become an outward renunciate and you have family responsibilities, uh, you better look very, very carefully at that before you just suddenly uh, dive off the deep end. It's also true that this outward form renunciation is by no means essential to a spiritual path. It's, it's remedial. And in one sense, you could say it's for the dummies, for those people who human relationships are such distractions for, they can't handle it. So uh, it's a very powerful practice, but it is, uh, uh, first of all, rare. Most uh, mystics actually have not been renunciates, especially when you take into consideration the, the Islamic and the Jewish traditions, where renunciation is very much frowned on. You can renounce for a little while, you can go on retreat and so forth, but to abandon the world is very much frowned on. All the great uh, Sufis and uh, Kabbalists and um, Hasidim were all uh, family people, basically. And as I said, it's simply remedial. It has no ultimate value. This is why Ramana Maharshi, who himself was a very pure outward renunciate, a, a great Hindu mystic of this century, said, the one obstacle is the mind. It must be got over, whether in the home or in the forest. Going to the forest is a symbol of outward renunciation in, in uh, Hinduism. If you can do it in the forest, why not in the home? Therefore, why change environment? Your efforts can be made even now, whatever be the environment. That is an important thing to keep in mind. So, what happens if you do remain a householder? Which probably most of you in this room are going to do. Well, this new relationship with the divine that comes into your life can sometimes be a tremendous relief to your partner or your spouse. 
because it means you're no longer looking to them to give you the impossible. And one of the problems of this uh, uh, misperception or, uh, or misdirection of our love is not only does it, will it fail for us, we can never get ultimate happiness from an, another person, but we put an impossible burden on the other person. We expect them to make us ultimately happy. And if they don't live up to that, we're constantly disappointed. So if you now have a new relationship with a divine and you look to the divine to make you ultimately happy, that can be a tremendous relief for your partner. On the other hand, this all depends on your partner, uh, some may react with jealousy. Because after all, it's now a menage a trois, you know, it's no longer exclusive. It's true. So it's a, a three-way relationship. And this is uh, quite practical. Sometimes uh, I've known couples where one person goes on a spiritual path and the other person gets very resentful. Gets very, if they're spending time with teachers or gurus, gets very resentful of that, but even just resentful of the fact that they go off and meditate or pray or whatever, you know? And in fact, the uh, literature, the great classic literature, is full of stories like this. Uh, Mahadevi, for instance, who I just quoted, she started out in life uh, as a young girl being dedicated to Shiva, her parents were very poor, a, a wealthy prince fell in love with her. She didn't want to go get married to him. She wanted to dedicate her life to Shiva. Now, here's where family responsibility comes in. But she recognized the benefit for her family, so she agreed. But she also made her husband agree. Uh, I've forgotten there were three conditions. He wouldn't interfere with her visiting gurus. He wouldn't interfere with her time at prayer and something else. He'd want her disciples, doesn't he? Ah, okay, thank you. And of course, as their marriage progresses, he can't restrain himself. He violates each of these three conditions. So when he breaks the contract, she says, goodbye, and she's off. And now she's pursuing Shiva. It's a wonderful story because, see, all these stories, it's, it's mythologized to somewhat, but they all have a lesson to teach us of what's appropriate, how to handle these things, you know. In any case, these are the two... Um, possible reactions or mixed reactions your, your partner or spouse can have. Uh, right away, this, the very fact there's a new relationship is going to cause some sort of transformation here. But in fact, all your relationships from now on are going to be triangular. You're never going to have an, a one-on-one -on -one relationship with anybody. You're going to have a relationship that refers to, at least from your side of it, refers to the divine. So for an example, instead of asking what do I require from my lover? You ask, what does the divine require of me in my relationship with my lover? That's a big difference here. Immediately, this self-centeredness, the focus on the self-centeredness is being dissipated. There's, there's almost, you could say, a referee, an arbitrator, something else here. So it's not just what you want anymore. What does my path, if you don't have a, if you're more of a Janani, what does my path require? Of, of this relationship. Here's what Rumi says. With God, two eyes cannot find room. You say I, and he says I. He possesses such gentleness that were it possible, he would die for you so that this, this duality might vanish. But since it is impossible for him to die, you die so that he may manifest himself to you and duality vanish. This is ultimately what the divine requires from us. And this is what? This, this is a wonderful image. This, with God, there can't be two eyes because there can't be any separation. There can't be any of this boundary. This is what we long for, but what we're also terrified of at the same time. So this is ultimately, this selflessness is what our path is always requiring of us. And that translates then into relationships. Now, putting the attention back on, our, on the seeker for a moment, before you can die, or as part of the process of dying, we should say, is abandoning attachments. Because attachments are, are uh, centered around this self. As long as the attachments are there, this sense of a self remains. Abandoning attachments, particularly and especially in relationships. So, the first way being actually on a spiritual path concretely starts to transform the relationship is in how you view it. Instead of regarding your lover 
as someone who's supposed to make you happy and it's a source for happiness and a source to get gratification from and all that, your lover now becomes a mirror for your attachments. And what a wonderful mirror. Just, just, look, just look at your lover and you will see what the things are, the way they behave and so forth, what the things are that you're attached to. And it is one of the most powerful forms of teaching you can get in this. Here's what Catherine of Siena says. She was a great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. Do you know how you can tell when your spiritual love is not perfect? If you are distressed when it seems that those you love are not returning your love or not loving you as much as you think you love them. Ring a bell with anybody? Or if you are distressed when it seems to you that you are being deprived of their company or comfort or that they love someone else more than you. Anybody been distressed about these things? All of this comes of the failure to dig out every bit of the root of spiritual selfishness. Now, listen to this carefully, what she's saying here. She's saying you, you can test your degree of selfish, selflessness. You can see it. She's not saying go blame yourself and beat yourself up and say, oh, what a terrible person I am. She's saying, look and see. Is this true of you? Are you distressed about these things? If you are, instead of blaming your lover and saying it's all your fault, you don't give me as, as much time as I need and all that, look to your own attachment here. You have an attachment. In very concrete ways, especially in a love relationship, you can ask things like, are you attached to how things should be done? So if your uh, partner does things differently, do you get into battles because they have to be done your way all the time? Uh, are you attached to being right? This was a big one for me. Anytime that uh, your uh, partner questions that you're right, you start to get a little antsy, and then once the next thing you know, you're in a big argument. An image of how your partner should be. And you're always after your partner, nagging your partner to be more this, more that. To conform to your image that you're attached to of how they should be. These are kinds of very concrete things you can look for in a relationship. Uh, the way your partner can mirror these attachments back to you. And what's really transformed here is instead of buying into your own attachments, and every time one arises, you, you're, you're at, at loggerheads with your partner, you're turning inward and saying, okay, what's the root of this attachment? And Catherine says that the great clue here is that you get distressed. Whenever you get distressed, you're distressed because of some attachment. So distress in any uh, relationship is a wonderful opportunity. You shouldn't think of it as something bad, like you're failing, and this is terrible, you haven't perfected your spiritual love. You should be grateful for it and say, oh, great opportunity. I can look and see my attachment here. And as we go here, these transformations also have their fruit. The more you can identify, specifically identify a certain attachment, like to being right all the time, and you have to identify it first, and then the more you can abandon it and let it go, the freer you are in that very relationship. You'll see for yourself. The next time that uh, you, know, you say something and your partner challenges you, and you feel that, you know, that rising distress and defensiveness and and the minute you feel it you just let it go and the space opens up it's really a almost a, um, a physical feeling of lightness the second transformation that takes place in relationships human relationships is to see them as an opportunity to practice the self-surrender to start actually practicing what it would be like to give up part of yourself in, in piecemeal, in little ways, to see if you are going to fall through this dreadful void into the pit of nothingness or not, and what's going to happen. To give it up unconditionally, not with a demand that you get something right back. Now, this is why it's very important to understand that all these relationships are triangular. You are not making a self-surrender to your partner. You are making it to the divine. And that's a, a very important thing to understand here. And there are situations where your partner will want something and you say no. 
I mean, a, a classic stereotypical kind of example is if your partner is an alcoholic or drug addict and they want money to pursue their uh, habit, it is not compassionate. It is not selfless to self-surrender and say, oh, yes, go take you know, all the kids' uh, college money and go off and destroy yourself. This isn't what the divine is demanding of you. It may be far more compassionate and, and far more selfless to actually take a stand in a situation that. You may have to expose yourself to danger. You may have to summon the courage to say no. So it's not a question of being a doormat here. But it is a question of finding ways in relationship where you give without expectation of something in return. You just do something nice for a person, you know. And then watch the, uh, you can watch very clearly the mind then later starts keeping score here. But you want to throw out the scorecard, you know, that's the idea here, you know. Here's what uh, uh, Catherine of Siena again says. You test the virtue of patience in yourself when your neighbors insult you. Your humility is tested by the proud, your faith by the unfaithful, your hope by the person who has no hope. Your justice is tried by the unjust. Patience. Your compassion by the cruel and your gentleness and kindness by the wrathful. Your neighbors are the channel through which all your virtues are tested and come to birth. And this is true with your partner. Jamgan Kongtrol, who is a great uh, Tibetan practitioner, gives this general advice about uh, how to view a relationship. And again, any relationship, but particularly with your partner. Whether you are physically ill, troubled in your mind, insulted by others, or bothered by enemies and disputes, in short, whatever annoyance, major or minor, comes up in your life or affairs, do not lay the blame on anything else, thinking that such and such caused this or that problem. Rather, you should consider, this mind grasps at self where there is no self. From time without beginning until now, it, is, it has, in following its own whims in samsara, perpetuated non-virtuous actions. All the sufferings I now experience are the results of those actions. No one else is to blame. This ego-cherishing attitude is to blame. I shall do whatever I can to subdue it. To recognize that it is your own self-centeredness that is always the root cause of your suffering and to stop blaming others. This, of course, is our first precept at the center. Now, again, the relationship gives you an opportunity to see this. You should be grateful for this. When you see that uh, self-centered attitude arising, and you'll recognize it through blaming your spouse, your partner, this is, aha! Opportunity to practice. Aha! Opportunity to investigate. Aha! Opportunity to go inside. And an opportunity also then to break this uh, habit of selfishness. We are slaves to the habit of selfishness. And so wherever we get an opportunity, he calls it subdue it, just to break it. And just for that one moment. And see what happens. It's an experiment. Because the reason we Hang on to that habit because of this terror we have, this fear we have. So by, in little ways, in a relationship, letting go of that and uh, just being open, just being spacious, just giving without asking anything in return, skip the, uh, you know, the, the horse trading and see what happens. The third transformation uh, that we experience comes when on our spiritual path we start having insights and illuminations. This happens as a practice deepens. You actually start, your whole experience of the world starts to transform. Uh, you start to, one way of describing this is you start to see the divine shining through in very ordinary situations, uh, often in the form of beauty, tremendous beauty in the world. And these flashes of uh, quite extraordinary and blissful experiences can happen to you. And at this point, you no longer see your lover as a mirror in which you see your attachments, so you don't see them just as a mirror. And you no longer just see them as an opportunity in which to practice these virtues 
and unconditional love and compassion, but you actually start to see your lover as a manifestation of the divine. So you, you do a double take one day and you say, my gosh, what beauty's here. And appearing to you personally is an ambassador sort of sent just for you. Now, this doesn't depend at all on your partner's awareness of playing this role, by the way. Don't ever make that mistake because you'll be very disappointed. It doesn't wipe out the personality traits of the character the way an anima or animus projection does. The very personality traits you now begin to see as teachings, as the way God is manifesting, particularly the ones you don't like. And it's more like a sense of a new dimension or a deeper dimension to what is already happening. It doesn't mean that anything spectacular transforms outwardly in your relationship. The fruit here, in essence, is your lover becomes your teacher, your guru, your spiritual teacher. And you can feel that quite directly. I did uh, uh, with Samantha, as I wrote about in my book. So whatever is going on, there's now another dimension to everything that's happening for you. It's like you're beginning to wake up in your dream and you're beginning to realize that it is a dream and because it is a dream, everything that's happening has a symbolic uh, meaning and value. Everything is saturated with meaning, particularly your spouse or your lover. You can read examples of this. I mentioned my book. Uh, one of the uh, greatest examples of this is, as I mentioned earlier, Rumi's poetry, especially about uh, Shams of Tabriz. When he writes of Shams, you don't know whether he's writing about the divine or about some guy named Shams. And that's intentional, because he doesn't know either. And in fact, they aren't really separate. And it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, expression of just this phenomena happening, this transformation happening in, in this relationship. And I will add one thing here. From my experience, anyway, making love to your partner can become literally like making love to God. It can be the most, uh, one of the most profound spiritual experiences you can have. It, it, it's, it's not a question of intellectually thinking this, but actually feeling that. And actually because uh, sex is a, a, a physical act of surrender. I mean, we don't always do it. You know, We don't always cooperate, but that's the the intention of the body, uh, to uh, allow that to happen, to feel safe enough, because after all, you're not making love just to another person, but you're making love to God, uh, that, that added dimension can often just allow that total physical, mental, emotional release to happen. But this is still not the end of the path, as marvelous and extraordinary as, as this is. And by the way, at least in my life, in my experience, this was one of the most uh, yes, I say extraordinary stages, parts of my path. Because as Rumi says, and this is a dialogue between, well, you see, we don't quite know. Is this is God or, or Shams, uh, but it's a dialogue between two lovers. The beloved said, you have done all these things, but open your eyes wide and listen well. You have not accomplished the root of the root of love and devotion. What you have done is the branches. The lover said, tell me, what is that root? She said, to die and become non-existent. So we're back to this ultimate demand that is always where the path is always going, where this relationship with the divine is always going. Even in this context of this harmony, if, if the world becomes transformed for you in that way or in some other uh, way, this experience of I and others still exists in that. It may be a, a, a totally transformed experience here, but there is still that sense of uh, myself and my lover and even myself and God and the divine. Complete union with the divine, as the bhaktis would express it, comes only through gnosis, and when it does come, it ends this experience altogether, this experience of I and other. So what happens then to relationships after Gnosis, after enlightenment, after union with God? 
Well, the first thing that happens is the relationship to God ends. If you're a bhakti, you realize that there was no ever special object to fall in love with. The God in that sense, as an object, other, out there, does not exist. If you're a janana, you realize there's no special state called enlightenment that exists out there different from what's going on right now. This is beautifully expressed by uh, uh, the first uh, aspect of this, the, this uh, what it means to say there is no God for the enlightened person by Ibn Arabi. He says, my eyes have never gazed on other than his face. In other words, everything is God and always has been. So this, this idea, this God up here, out there, something that just totally vanishes. You wake up and just realize you have been drowned in, in God from the very beginning. Huang Po talks about this uh, from the point of view of the search for enlightenment. He says, that which is before you is it, in all its fullness, utterly complete. There is naught besides. So, it's not that mystics are lying when they talk about enlightenment and awakened mind and Buddha mind and all that. What cannot be communicated in words is that it is not other than what is here right now. It isn't something else. So there's no relationship anymore. A relationship requires an I and another. There's no relationship with enlightenment. There's no relationship with God. So what happens to human relationships? And this is the hardest to describe, but uh, if we start with a little Zen saying, maybe get some handle on it. There's a Zen saying that goes, before I studied Zen, mountains looked like mountains. After I started studied Zen for a while, mountains no longer look like mountains. Now that I'm enlightened, mountains look like mountains. Now this is part of what we just described about how you start off in a relationship, a, a, a relationship seems like an ordinary relationship, through the course of a spiritual path it gets transformed into something extraordinary, everything takes on symbolic meaning and so forth, and then finally that's all wiped out. In some sense there's no difference between the beginning and the end, it's like you've come full circle and yet the fact of having come full circle makes all the difference in the world. Well, obviously it's one of these paradoxes of a path. But let me try to be very concrete and personal here. And of course, language is going to always trip me up because I'm going to speak in our normal English language that demands a subject and object to sentences. And I'm going to talk about my relationship to Jennifer, who's my wife. I don't see Jennifer as a special manifestation of God, the way I saw Samantha, by the way. I see all of you as manifestations of God equally. There's nothing special about Jennifer. She's not some special manifestation of God. All of you and the cats around here and the gnats and the mosquitoes and everything else. God does not appear in any extraordinary way at all. Everything's just absolutely equal, the same. So then why is Jennifer special to me? Because she is. It's not in being a manifestation of God. It's in being Jennifer. Her specific little personality traits. The very things that before I was enlightened, I would have overlooked in my search for the ideal soulmate, or when I got to know them, would have become annoying. You know how you live with somebody for a while, and then you discover, oh, they got these little things that annoy you? Those are the things that are special to me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm absolutely serious. It's what I like and don't like. And I don't object to her personality, These all these little things. I don't want to change her and make her different. At the same token, I don't object to mine. And I have little personality traits. And 
I don't object to the interplay that happens. And there is an interplay, because they don't always mesh exactly. And if I asked, why did God send me her? The answer is, what's going on right now? There's nothing else to look beyond and see. This is it. When she balls me out for not washing the ring around the tub, that's it. That's what this means. This is God's play. Or when she uh, uh, makes me this wonderful little shrimp dish she makes, that's God's play. It's not that I don't have any preferences in here, but that's all part of the play. It's the details now that stand out. Because God is there. You don't have to look for God anymore. So, in other words, again, it's like coming really full circle. It is precisely what makes her a unique little individual that makes her special to me, and nothing more. There's nothing to read into that. There's not a great quest for God in my relationship with her. We're not, uh, I'm not looking for her to fulfill that need. So we just, as Zorba would say, we dance. Sometimes we step on each other's toes, but we dance. <laughs> so, let me end with a little uh, quote from Lali Shori, who was another great Hindu mystic. Uh, and she sums up this whole thing very well, I think. She says, in the undifferentiated consciousness, the play of birth and death goes on. And I would put in here, including the play of relationships. But ordinary people misunderstand it. It's simply the play of Chitta Shakti. Chitta Shakti is consciousness's power to play. Well, we would say consciousness's power to imagine, to imagine this world form. So, I hope that was helpful somewhat to uh, an understanding of the role relationships can play on the spiritual path and how a spiritual path can transform relationships. And I hope it was also somewhat helpful, at least gave you things to look for in a relationship, because the transformation in a relationship doesn't usually happen just automatically by grace. Occasionally it can, but it usually requires us to be partners in this transformation. We have to uh, be attentive, and we have to look for these things, and we have to make a little effort to practice some of these virtues and try, and it's not always easy. It's like anything else you learn in life. You learn slowly, you, you fail, and you try, and it doesn't work, but over time, if you stick with it, you'll get better at it. And you'll see it will work, and you will see that uh, along the way, you don't have to wait for the end of the path. There are real, genuine fruits to be gained. Freedom, uh, the joy of uh, experiencing love, unconditional love, a love that doesn't have strings attached, even if it's just in little ways and just in little moments uh, during the course of that. And all those things that will give you confidence to proceed on this path of selflessness, and they are what overcome that fear, because you know from your own experience, it doesn't lead to some sort of terrible annihilation in a physical sense. The very thing you're afraid of is that ocean of infinite joy, infinite compassion, unconditioned, totally free. And that's what ultimate happiness is. Why don't we bring the uh, formal part of the morning to a close? And you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library and chat. And until I see you again, peace to you all.